How can he do this? We get it. You went from here to here, but how? Because if we're more, if we're, if we're more uh, 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 specific, we would ask it perhaps like this. How can someone who is under the curse of the covenant of works, of which he has earned, and instead inherits the blessings of a covenant of grace, of which he has not earned? How can that be? Particularly if we were to get just a little bit more, more narrow yet, and then step back out, we're asking a question of the justice and integrity of God. How can that just be that you go from the covenant curse, death, for the wages of your sin is death, but there's a gift? And you think, well, how does that work? How do I go from here to here if there's integrity in your speech? If you're just, because I have earned covenant cursing, and you said I would receive it. So how now am I not receiving it? There's an issue here. There's a theological dilemma that we're at. This theological dilemma, or as some describe it as the riddle of the Old Testament, in other words, it's not new. That, that's why we have to see the Bible in these lines. We have to see the covenant of grace structuring biblical revelation from the very beginning all the way on. That each one of us, our entire sacred history, is shared in the development and the progressive succession of this one covenant of grace. Because it's not a new question. As I said to you, some have described it as the riddle, not of the New Testament, but the riddle of the Old Testament, and it's made in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. I'll simply read it because it's asking the same question. It sets up the entire problem, the dilemma that we're all facing. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I read it for you. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Did, did you catch the conundrum? Right, right. So, so you, you heard, maybe, maybe you kind of black out at the, at the, at, at the blessings because you think, yes, I know that guy. I know that. I totally get it. Yes, 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 yes. I get it. You, you will forgive. Yes, I get it. You, you will look past my transgression. Yes, you will cleanse me of sin. Yes. But then there's a comma there. Right, right. So, so, so the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And you're like, yes, I know him. I, that's, what I, that, that's what I'm acclimated toward. It's intuitive for me to think these things of him. Slow to anger, sure. Abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you're like, yes. And then there's a comma right there. And it says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
So you're like, wait a minute. I thought we just read that you would forgive my sins, iniquities, and transgressions. And the statement is, I will. I will. I did say that, yes. But the answer then follows. But not simply by looking past them. You see, this crystallizes the dilemma of how someone goes from a, a, a state in the covenant of works into the covenant of grace. How one moves from an estate. In, 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 again, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother even conceive me. So, so how does one become delivered from this estate, this essence of there being of sin and misery and being brought into an estate of salvation? In other words, I'm asking you very specifically, individual this morning, very specifically, particularized. Everyone's underneath the weight of it in the room, all of us, by virtue of being from Adam, by virtue of being born in existence. We have to ask this question. But I'm asking you, this particular point, this is what I want to drive at you to wrestle with and think through and, and provide your answer as we move forward. How do you, person, Right now, you, individual, experience mercy, grace, forgiveness, steadfast love, and patience from a God who will by no means clear your guilt. That, that, that's the question you're, you're thinking through. That's the riddle. He, pr- he pledges and promises, but then he won't just look past it all. Where do we go from here? One author writes this, and I, and I want to press this issue forward because it builds on what we looked at just prior last week. One author makes this comment in regards to the question that I'm asking you. He says, quote, many Christians think that the answer to the the dilemma is obvious. They are happy to say, God can forgive us because we have faith and leave it pretty much at that. So if faith was your answer a minute ago... I'll read the whole quote, and and then we'll we'll, we'll progress and move forward. Many Christians think the answer to the dilemma is obvious. They are happy to say God can forgive us because we have faith. And leave it pretty much at that. But to be blunt, faith itself never saved anyone. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New, and not now. End quote. Now, sometimes, perhaps at first glance or first blush, as soon as you kind of take take that in or hear this statement, perhaps it seems a bit provocative at first glance to say something is over the top, is perhaps 
when he says to be blunt, that always indicates okay, maybe someone's going to overstate their case or overplay their hand. And so what, what's going to go forth? This blunt object is coming at me. But he reveals something that is not provocative at all, actually. It's critical. He reveals what is essential to the dilemma that we're facing. Faith itself never saved anyone. How can we make that statement here as we move forward in answering this issue of a dilemma? It's because we looked last week, so we can't rehearse too much, but I push forward to help you clarify maybe where he's going in the statement that faith itself never saved anyone. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New, and not now. What does that mean? Well, recall, faith is simply a vessel that receives what is provided. And it rests upon that provision for salvation. Do you see the distinction? Faith receives what is out here provided. And and faith, as that vessel, rests upon that provision for salvation. You, You see, the distinction is faith doesn't perform work or achieve salvation. As we looked last week, once again, as we looked last week with Abraham, as Paul says, the man of faith, as we looked to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul makes that the paradigm for you there in the new. So, so whether you're talking Abraham in the role of faith, or you're talking you in the role of faith in the new covenant. Faith is functioning the same way. And we recognize with Abraham, as Paul articulates, faith was the empty hand, the empty hand that received God's blessings, not the busy hand that earned them. Again, if I can press just one more, and then we're moving into our next section. Faith cannot save you. Only a person can, in whom your faith rests. That's a critical distinction, because your faith will waver. But your covenantal status does not. Faith is a vessel. It's set about by many weaknesses. It's sought after. It's attacked. It's driven. It goes bone dry. But, but, but though the vessel may waver, the empty hand that receives and sits and lifts up an empty cup, though it wavers, though it have trembling hands, it clings to a strong Lord who never wavers. Who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? That, 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 that's the anger. N- not, not the weakness of my vessel, but the strength of the Lord. The object wherein that vessel comes to terminate and rest. And the weakness of your faith is upheld by the graciousness of your Lord. When my faith is weak, 
I rely on your grace that is never changing. That's the critical distinction. Why we can't be happy to say, God will forgive my sins because I have faith. Because, again, faith never saves anyone. A person is who can save. And it's this provision of a person. That, that, that's the piece. Not the vessel, but the person. It's this provision of a person that brings us to our third and final covenant in our study, which is known as the covenant of redemption. So this is our final one. For the way that I want to go about it, just for the next couple of moments here, I'm simply going to sketch the covenant of redemption briefly from John 17. And then we'll be gone, um, uh, 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 we'll be out of the, the final covenant conversation for two Sundays. And then, and then we'll hit it there. It's just the way things broke down. We'll, we'll, we'll end up coming back to sew up the covenant of redemption in a couple of weeks. So for this morning, what I want to do is I want to simply sketch it from John 17 so you can see the evidence of it. And then spend time in John 17. Look at this tremendous, what's called high priestly prayer of our Lord for his people. Just spend time in John 17. But I want to sketch John 17 just briefly for you so that we can see what indeed is going on in John 17 from the covenant of redemption's perspective. Or as we would interpret it in light of, as we glean wisdom from this text, the covenant of redemption. If I could define it just briefly for you, to put it simply, the covenant of redemption is an eternal agreement. So, so it sketches back in time. And you'll see that in just a moment in John 17, or as it was read for you already and you considered it. But we're looking at, we're kind of eavesdropping in times past, eternity, as it were. This is where the covenant is structured, in eternity. So here, here we're saying the covenant of redemption is an eternal agreement. That, that's what we mean by covenant, an eternal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to redeem. Thus, the covenant of redemption or the agreement of redemption uh, between the members of the Trinity or persons of the Trinity to redeem or to save a fallen humanity. The way that it kind of functions then, and you'll see this here in the prayer. We won't be able to get to all of it, but you'd see it all over the place in John's gospel. You would see it again and again and again. And that is simply this, is how it kind of functions among the members of the Trinity. And is this, the Father agrees to send the Son. So again, I'm defining for you what a covenant is. It's, it's an eternal agreement. What are they agreeing to do? God, within his simplicity, within his essence, agrees among the persons of the Trinity to do what? The Father, in this function of the agreement, is pleased to agree to send the Son. The Son, in the same arrangement, is pleased to agree to be sent. And the Spirit is pleased to agree to empower the mission and to apply its effect. This is their own covenant, God's own covenant within himself to redeem a fallen humanity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice John 17, if you would jump with me so we can see just simply two structural elements of the evidence of the covenant here in John 17, 1 through 5. I'll look at uh, verses 1 through 5 first, and then we'll kind of conclude in just a moment by looking at the last portion there uh, of, uh, I think, maybe 6 through 9 or so. Um, 
Look at the portion. I want to read the text and then we'll kind of walk through it first um, to see two elements wherein we see here the same evidence where we looked in Genesis elsewhere at the two other elements of covenant we see in the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and here in this pre-temporal covenant that Jesus is praying about in um, John 17, the covenant of redemption. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, and, and, and that's an important piece to build that bridge coming out of verse 33, predicting what's going to happen in his own death. It was fulfilled exactly. Um, the shepherd was struck and uh, the sheep scattered. And yet he says here um, in the end of verse 32, I'm not alone for the Father is with me. And then verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now in that conversation between the disciples, he then directs his gaze, as John says, he lifted his eyes to heaven. So now we're entering into this discussion between the Son and the Father. He explained to the disciples who are there, this is what it's about, I've overcome the world. So as you hear that, I, I have, oh, take heart. You're going to have a hard time. Take heart. Upon what grounds? I've already overcome it. You want to eliminate difficulty and, and, and challenge in your pilgrim's journey. Indeed, your faith will waver. But I have overcome the world. Okay, they stamp, they see, and he turns and gazes upward. This direction. This is the conversation we're having now about the pre-temporal covenant. Notice how he does it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, as we speak about covenant so far consistently from the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and herein in the covenant of redemption, there are two elements here that give clarity that Jesus is referencing in a covenantal arrangement or two elements that clarify this to be indeed a covenantal arrangement for redemption between the members of the Trinity. And the first one is the conditional element. There is a condition laid forward unto the Son in the accomplishment of the covenant. There's a conditional element to the covenant, as we saw in the covenant of works unto Adam, unto grace unto Abraham, and unto Christ in redemption. There is a conditional element to the relationship. You see, the Father sent the Son with conditions to fulfill. You, you see that right there when he says in verse 4, I've accomplished them. 
I've accomplished the work that you gave to me to do. But the question is, what is the work? If if we look at the text, what is the work that the Son was sent? The Father is pleased to send the Son. The Son is pleased to be sent of the Father. And the Spirit is pleased, one with himself, to empower and apply the Son's mission. What is the work for his mission? If we look at the text very carefully, you notice it was to glorify God on the earth. Notice how it says, so, so he says, um, the hour has come, glorify me, that I may glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. Now, he, he's doing so, mission, condition number one in this covenant is that he would glorify the Father on the earth. I did it. You sent me to glorify you. I am on the earth and I have glorified you. Having accomplished it, all the work that you gave me to do, more specifically, not generally, if we just say, is it generally that he glorified God randomly, broadly speaking, generally in the covenant, bring glory, make me gloriously appear on the earth? The answer is yes and no, generally, but more specifically, our Lord glorified the Father, specifically. By giving eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. Look at John uh, 6 through 8. Verse 4, once again. So you can see, I glorified you on the earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He glorified him particularly. Verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Do you see verse 4? Do you see it, how it's it's functioning? I glorified you. Broadly speaking, generally, yes, but more particularly, yes. How? I manifested your name to the people that you gave me when you sent me here. I manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Do you see that it's the Father's? The Father is pleased to agree to send the Son. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. You see, it was Jesus' work to perform. It was his task laid upon him to move Adam's offspring from death to life. That's the work he's describing. It was the Father's will that the Son would come and he would take Adam's offspring from death and covenant curse 
to life and covenant blessing. I did it. Hey, you're going to have trouble in the world, but don't lose heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Father, I have glorified you on the earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, I have manifested your name to the ones that you have given me. They know that I am from you and that you sent me for them. It was upon the work of the Son to move Adam's offspring from death to life, to change them from being people who hate God to people who now love and worship him. These are the conditional elements of the covenant of redemption. The second element, as we said, there's two elements, and this is my last one for the morning, is simply there is the conditional element in each covenant. I have done what you laid out. I have obeyed the conditions of the covenant, namely to bring your glory on the earth specifically by means of giving eternal life to those that you sent me. I've done it. The hour has come. So there's the conditional element, and then there is the second element of a covenant is the blessing element. That is that there would be a blessing for obedience. That is if the son does obey the father perfectly in his life and completes the mission that the father sent him to do, there would be a blessing upon the son for having accomplished the work that the father gave him to do. And so notice carefully in the passage the blessings that are bestowed upon the son. The first one is there in verse 2. You'll see it. Uh, We'll begin in verse 1. When Jesus spoke in these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. I did it. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Now, in coordination with that, look at verse 2. Look at the very first bestowal of the blessing upon the son. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. You see, this is nothing more than the exercise of Christ's kingly authority. The blessing conferred upon the son is his appointment is his appointment as king over how many people? All flesh. He is that's why we say he is the king of kings. There is no flesh which is not subject to him. I I've done it. Glorify me that I might glorify you, since you have given authority to me over all flesh. But you see, this this exercise of kingship is not only over all flesh, but notice the very next statement in the text. It is particularized in a loving way. To exercise or to give, to bestow eternal life to all whom you have given You see, not only is Christ reigning as king over all flesh, but he is lovingly so over the people the Father has given him. He gave eternal life to all whom you have given him. In verse 3, he declares very carefully, very clearly, what that is in essence. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent You see, so he reigns over all in verse 2. And he exercises a particular reign 
as a loving king over all whom you have given him. Finally, according to verse 5, the bestowal of blessing upon the son, you see where the son is going. I'll read the text and look very carefully at the blessing bestowed upon the son for having accomplished the work that the father gave him to do. The hour has come. Glorify your son. Let the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And the final bestowal of blessing here in verse 5, that the Son pleads, in the accomplishment of the covenant, the blessing to be bestowed. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The final bestowal of the blessing and the covenant of redemption upon the Son for having accomplished all that the Father had given him to do is to spend eternity in glory in the presence of his Father. Let me be where I was with you before the world began. That is the blessing and bestowal upon the Son for being sent, overcoming the world, saving his people, and applying that salvation to the elect. In conclusion, our final statement simply by introduction, and we'll look at the covenant of redemption more, as I said, when we get... Going yet again, we'll have one at max two more. But I want to clarify that we must return to the dilemma and conclusion that we started with. Because if you've noticed, the fact still remains, as we've presented it this morning, that you, person, have broken the covenant of works and are still due to face God as an enemy. Now, if all we had was faith, we'd be in a host of trouble. Because once again, faith itself as a thing cannot save you. But as John 17 points out, Jesus can. So according to the covenant of redemptions we see here, our faith must terminate solely upon him as the appointed redeemer of mankind. How do you move from the covenant curse to the covenant blessing? Through faith, yes. Through faith that terminates and rests upon Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for structuring human history 